Well, welcome to Episode 2 of The Grand Scheme of Things. I'm your tour guide, Bill McKim. This session is all about something called emergence, perhaps the most important concept we'll deal with in this series. Just as soon as that banjo player goes away, we'll get to it. Okay, thank you. In the first episode, I talked a lot about the nature of science and told you that science was distinguishable from other ways of knowing because scientific ideas must be subject to a means of being proved wrong. In other words, scientific theories must be able to make predictions that can be tested. That is to say, they must be falsifiable. For this reason, the subject matter of science must be presumed to follow natural laws. That is, science cannot deal with phenomena that are supernatural. The earliest scientists were not called scientists. They were called natural philosophers and commonly studied all natural phenomena without specializing in any particular science. These natural philosophers were amateurs. Uh, although not always, they were ladies and gentlemen of independent means, either moneyed upper class or the clergy. But around the time of Newton in the, the early 18th century, it became more common for natural philosophers to be professional and to specialize in particular fields of science, such as astronomy uh, and physics. Those who studied celestial phenomena were astronomers, and if you studied heat and light, you were a physicist. Chemistry got its start as alchemy, and chemists studied the elements and how they interacted, and biology was the study of living things. Today we have a vast proliferation of sciences, and older fields such as physics can now be divided into subspecialties like quantum physics or nuclear physics or cosmology. The point is that the subject matter of science started as the study of nature, but now is the study of many seemingly isolated subspecialties. Because of this diversification, we seem to forget that we're all studying the same thing, all governed by the same set of laws, the laws of nature. So let's have a closer look and see if this is really still true. Let's start with physics. Historically, physics appears to be at the root of all natural phenomena. Physics studies matter made up of atoms. The idea that all matter was composed of atoms started a couple hundred years before Christ in ancient Greece. These ideas were lost during the Dark Ages, but were rediscovered in the Renaissance in Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries. We will discuss this in more detail in later episodes. Chemistry, or chemists, study how these atoms join together to form molecules and how molecules interact with each other. Sometimes these molecules join together in a particular way and we say that they're alive, and that's what biologists study, living organisms. Living organisms follow particular patterns of behavior as they interact with the world around them, and these patterns are studied by psychologists. But that's only half the story. 
The ancient Greeks who first postulated the existence of atoms believed atoms were indivisible. Atoms were as small as you could get, but they were wrong. It turns out that atoms are made up of neutrons and protons and electrons, and these are made up of even smaller particles called quarks. Since subatomic particles were discovered, physicists have developed what is now called the standard model of what atoms are made of and how they are held together by other particles called leptons and bosons. But their work is far from being finished. But what are quarks made of? This is a big mystery. Not long ago, physicists postulated that quarks and other subatomic particles were made of vibrating strings. This was known as string theory. These days, there's not much enthusiasm for string theory as there used to be. It now looks as though strings have been replaced by loops. Now, don't worry, I don't really understand it either, but that's not the point. The point is that everything in nature ultimately is made up of the same stuff and follows the same laws. The ancient Greeks were correct. All the sciences are ultimately studying the same thing. Thus, the biologist studying photosynthesis, how plants turn sunlight into energy, is studying a process understandable in terms of the properties of molecules and photons, which can be explained by the properties of neutrons and protons and electrons, which can be explained by the properties of quarks, and finally loops or strings or whatever there is. This is what they mean when some physicists say that they're looking for the theory of everything. The whole process of explaining phenomena in one science in terms of another, more elemental science, is called reductionism. I've always been a great fan of reductionism, even though it has long since been out of favor. The resistance to reductionism is widespread and based largely on scientific territoriality and prolonged by policies of granting agencies and scientific publications and the departmental structure of universities and training programs. I like the concept because it reflects the unification of knowledge. The idea that ultimately everything can be explained in terms of physics appeals to me. And we will say quite a bit more on this later, but not now. First, we have to talk about emergence. Mr. Banjo Player, if you please. Pretty near everyone exposed to the Bible and the Torah will be familiar with the Jewish uh, and the Christian accounts of creation. They are the same. The very first chapter of the book of Genesis goes something like this. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Formless is the interesting word here. The first thing God did was to impose order on all this random, formless chaos. It only took him or her a few days to do that. Now, the biblical account is not unlike the Big Bang Theory favored by modern cosmologists. Both accounts agree that out of disorder and chaos came order. But science and religion disagree on how this order came about and how long it took. 
You may be familiar with the second law of thermodynamics, which states that order in nature eventually breaks down into disorder. For this reason, many people seem surprised that nature, when left to its own devices, has a tendency to order itself without divine intervention. It's just an awful lot slower than God. These order-producing capacities are collectively referred to as emergence, and surprisingly it is not surprisingly it is most remarkable an understudy feature of nature emergence refers to the fact that when you have numerous items or elements or units that have a specific set of properties and these elements interact with each other in a particular way you will often find that this results in something new or novel that has properties not seen in the original elements Okay, we desperately need an example here. Let's say that you have molecules of hydrogen and oxygen, and you mix them together. They form water. Now, you take this water and freeze it. It becomes a solid, ice. And that ice will float on water. Under other conditions, you will get snowflakes, all of which have six sides. You can study the properties of hydrogen and oxygen and neither of them have the properties of a molecule of water. You can study the individual molecules of water, and none of them have the properties of large numbers of H2O molecules tumbling around with each other. The properties of water, then, emerge from the interaction of water molecules that emerge from the properties of hydrogen and oxygen. Thus, wetness is a property of water, but it would not make sense to say that a molecule of H2O is wet or a molecule of hydrogen or oxygen is wet either. The notion was summarized by the quantum physicist Lee Smolin, who said, A property of something made of parts is emergent if it would not make sense when attributed to any of its parts. People often describe this sort of thing by saying the whole is more than the sum of its parts. Here's another example of emergence in biology involving ants. The famous American biologist E.O. Wilson, a champion of reductionism, by the way, is famous for his studies of ant colonies. An ant colony is a complicated entity, yet it is constructed, fed, cooled, cleaned, defended by many hundreds of thousands of fairly simple units, namely the ants. There seems to be no one in charge, no organizer to tell them what to do, no chief executive officer. There's a queen, but all she does is lay eggs. In spite of having no leader, each unit knows exactly what to do in a variety of circumstances, so the colony runs smoothly. Ants, of course, are not simple by any means. They are complex living organisms, but their behavior appears to be governed by a few simple rules that can be discovered by a careful observer like Wilson. Wilson knew that ants communicate with each other by the release of pheromones. When they are injured or when they find food, etc., they release a pheromone that other ants can detect. All other ants are programmed to respond in a particular manner to each pheromone. Each ant is programmed to follow a few very simple rules regarding the release of pheromones and what to do when a particular pheromone is detected. The net result is a highly complex and intricate colony 
that emerges with no one in charge. Here's an example of how ants following a few simple rules can result in the colony, not the individual ants, doing clever things. Ants leave the colony in search of food, and if they find any, they bring it back to the colony. As they move, they leave a pheromone trail. When they get back home, other ants follow the pheromone trail back to the food. But what happens when this trail is interrupted by an obstruction like a fallen branch? Ants must be able to re-establish the broken trail. They do this by following a couple of simple rules. The first rule is, follow the most recent or the strongest trail, which is what they are doing in the first place. If the trail becomes blocked by a rock or a stick of wood, ants, both those going to the food source and those coming from it, branch off in both directions along the obstruction. Those who take the shortest route will meet ants going in the opposite direction sooner and follow their trails back to the original pheromone trail. New ants arriving at the obstruction will then follow the path of the ants that arrived there first, that is, the ones that followed the shortest pheromone trail. And that will be the trail that all ants will follow after that. So individual ants follow simple rules. A. Follow the strongest pheromone trail. And B. If the trail is blocked, follow the obstruction until you find another pheromone trail. Ants that chose the longer way around the obstruction will eventually get back to the original trail, but by that time the short trail will be established, and so, so no ants will take the long route. Thus, without the benefits of maps, GPS, drones, or a CEO, they will find the shortest way around an obstruction. To help gain insight into emergence, I invite you to play John Conway's Game of Life. This is not really a game in the competitive sense, but it is very entertaining. It involves a variety of cellular automata, a mathematical invention. A cell is simply a square in a large matrix of squares. The cell is either off, usually indicated as being a color either black or white, in Conway's game, he designates a cell as being alive, that's black, or dead, white. This status is determined by the status of its eight neighbors. Conway's rules are simple. If a cell has three living neighbors, it becomes alive, that is, it turns black. If it has two living neighbors, it stays alive. Otherwise, it dies, it turns white. Conway explains the death as from overcrowding, if it has more than three neighbors, and from loneliness, if it has fewer than two. The game proceeds in discrete clock ticks. At each tick, the status for each cell is determined by the next tick. Sound simple? Well, it is. To begin the game, you pretend to be God, and you create a pattern of living cells. Then see what happens as each tick is calculated. 
When Conway first invented the game in the early 1970s, he used the checkerboard tiles on the floor of the common room of the Department of Mathematics at Cambridge during tea breaks. Later, Conway also used a PDP-7 computer. But now you can play the game on the web. First, go to Wikipedia and search for Conway's Game of Life. Make sure you specify Conway's Game of Life. There's a Milton Bradley board game called The Game of Life, but you don't want that. Wikipedia will give you a great overview of how the game works and what you need to know. Don't spend too much time there. Once you've grasped the basics, it's much more fun to play the game. You can always come back to Wikipedia and find out more. When you're ready to play, go back to your browser and type in, again, Conway's Game of Life. There are several websites where you can play the game. The one to look for is by Edwin Martin. Start by clicking on a few cells in the matrix. They will change color. Then click the Start button. What Conway found, and what you will also find, is that at first it looks as though cells turn on and off in an erratic manner. But soon patterns are created by collections of living cells. These patterns have specific properties, and each have names like gliders that float across the matrix either infinitely or until they collide with other patterns with names like glider guns or puffer trains, depending upon initial conditions. The game can end because all cells die. Sometimes it settles into a consistent pattern that repeats in cycles, which continue indefinitely. But often the game settles into a stable state, moving forever through its universe, leaving a trail of intricate debris. Conway's game, and others like it, are called cellular automata. They illustrate mathematically a natural principle. A collection of elements, each one of which operates using a simple set of rules, can combine and interact to create an extremely complicated system which soon starts to organize itself into other simple units whose properties are quite different. These entities can then interact to form new entities with different properties. Thus, cells which are static by themselves can form gliders, which move, and gliders that can interact and create entities with different properties. It should be noted that these new entities clearly derive their properties from the properties of individual cells, which are entirely predictable from knowing the properties of individual cells. For example, mathematicians are able to prove ahead of time that it is possible to design an entirely self-replicating automaton. And that's been done. There are two phenomena very important to us that are clearly emergent. They illustrate how amazing and surprising it and seemingly magical emergence can be. They are life and consciousness. At some point, maybe more than three and a half billion years ago, life emerged from lifeless molecules on this earth in the form of self-replicating molecules, which evolved by means of Darwinian evolution into single-celled creatures, and then multi-celled creatures, and then, eventually, human beings. But that's another podcast altogether. Consciousness. At some point along this evolutionary journey of living creatures, 
nerve cells developed, and their interconnectedness and increasing complexity uh, caused the emergence of consciousness. When in the history of life this actually happened is not known. Many firmly believe that this happened for the first time in the human brain, but for those of us who have lived with pets, there is evidence that consciousness has also developed in non-human brains. But again, that's another story that we may get to. In these examples, we have discussed a couple of mechanisms by which nature organizes itself. There seem to be several. One is Conway's model, where elements operating on simple rules can come together to form entities that show novel properties. In other cases, emergence occurs when forces of order and disorder collide. If you heat a liquid, this causes the molecules to speed up and collide more often. In other words, there is an increasing disorder, as the second law of thermodynamics describes. But at the same time, if heat is applied only from the bottom of the container, the hot liquid will tend to rise because it is less dense. This creates an organizing influence, convection currents, currents of rising and falling fluid. These currents quickly organize themselves into convection cells known as Rayleigh-Bernard convection cells. If you suspend something visible like iron filings in the liquid, you will be able to see these cells and that they can form intricate geometric patterns on the surface. That is, organization out of chaos. To find out more about this, check out Rayleigh-Bernard convection in Wikipedia. Another organizing process is what we call Darwinian evolution mentioned earlier where there is random variation in the properties of self-replicating units and a process of selection which units get to be replicated. I am sure you're familiar with that process. It depends on random variation, so the process can take a very long time. Three and a half billion years is a lot longer than six days. I suppose you may have guessed by now that everything that you see around you and that you, yourself, are the result of emergence of some kind. Smolin's definition of emergence says that anything that has properties that did not belong to the elements that created it is emergent. So that if the universe you see does not have properties of a quark, it is emergent. And even quarks themselves emerged from strings or loops, so their properties are emergent too. Once again, our reality is really a matter of perspective. From the perspective of emergence, all nature is organized by emergent laws, each one flowing from the organization of something more elementary. The truth of this statement seems obvious when we think of the origin of the universe which took place in one singular event called the Big Bang. What existed at that time is not exactly clear, but it is clear that there were no atoms or molecules or solid matter or suns, planets, trees, people, art, poetry, war, parliaments, colors, emotions, etc. All these things have emerged from something else. Some things emerge first and other things emerge from them. As the Nobel Prize winning professor of physics at Stanford University, Robert Lachlan, lyrically states, the laws of quantum mechanics 
the laws of chemistry, the laws of metabolism, and the laws of bunnies running away from foxes in the courtyard of my university all descend from each other. But the last set are the laws that count, in the end, for the bunny. Perspective is everything. There is another property of emergence that, although not clearly established, could be extremely important. Unlike the butterfly effect in chaos theory, emergence appears to be extremely insensitive to initial conditions, at least insofar as phase transitions are concerned. For example, atoms that form into crystals are always moving and changing position, yet the properties of the crystalline structure do not change. Water can freeze into at least 11 different kinds of ice, yet all kinds of ice have the same physical properties. And all fluids, no matter what chemicals they're made of, obey the laws of hydrodynamics. And metals of all type conduct electricity. These are examples from phase transitions in physics, but it seems that the same tolerance of initial conditions can be seen elsewhere. In John Conway's Cellular Automata, gliders and puffer trains frequently appear from a great variety of initial conditions, and consciousness emerges from brains even after they have been severely damaged. Whether all emergent phenomena are this robust remains to be seen. Now let's get back to reductionism and the different sciences. As you recall, reductionism is the belief that we can understand the properties of things in terms of the properties of the elements they emerged from. But can you? If things are more than the sum of their parts, where does the more come from? Is it created by a supernatural process? If so, then this would create a barrier between the sciences that would block reductionism. Nothing could be understood in terms of the properties of its elements. Remember back to the first episode when we talked about Laplace's demon. Laplace postulated that if this demon knew the position of every atom in the universe and also knew its motion and trajectory, the demon would be able to predict everything that would ever happen in the future. The critical question for us is this. Could Laplace's demon predict emergent properties ahead of time, or does emergence create a horizon beyond which the demon cannot see? To begin with, we need to look at specific cases of emergence and see if and how they can be explained by the properties of their elements. For many, if not most emergent phenomena, it may be relatively easy to see how emergence happens. These include Wilson's descriptions of ant colonies and the mathematics of Conway's game of life, which we are now well understand. Conway worked out the mathematics of the game many years ago, but the most impressive and amazing emergences remain a mystery. We still do not know how life emerges from living matter, and we do not even know what consciousness is, not to mention how it is generated. Perhaps we never will. 
there have been many cases where seemingly mysterious emergence has been explained when the properties of their elements were learned. At one time it was a mystery how the properties of hydrogen and oxygen would make ice float and make snowflakes have six points. But as we learned more about the elements and the bonds between hydrogen and oxygen, the connection became quite clear. I suggest if you want to pursue this matter, you may do so by looking up the entry for water in Wikipedia. It has been known for centuries by alchemists that different substances burn with different color flames. It was mysterious, mysterious and magical at first, but it is understood clearly now that we know about the atomic structure and the properties of light. Incidentally, this is an example of why some people do not like reductionism. They say that it removes the mystery and the magic and even the beauty of nature. Wilson, the man who studied the ant colonies, himself seems somewhat sanguine about the possibility that emergence may create some barriers that we are unable to cross. He says, At each level of organization, especially at the living cell and above, Phenomena exist that require laws and principles which still cannot be predicted from those at more general levels. Perhaps some of them will remain forever beyond our grasp. Perhaps prediction of the most complex systems from more general levels is impossible. That would not be all bad, I confess with pleasure. The challenge and the crackling of thin ice are what gives science its metaphysical excitement. Wilson and I have to agree to disagree on this. I do agree that the challenges of understanding nature are exciting, and solving them can be tedious, but there's nothing more exciting than solving nature's puzzles by discovering nature's own rules. Maybe some problems in nature can never be resolved, but if so, that will be due to shortcomings of human intellect, not because nature does not play by the rules. Talk to you later.